Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Catholic princess who grew up in France and married King Charles I of England, Scotland and Ireland, Henrietta Maria has traditionally been reviled. She was, we're told, a seductress who dominated Charles. She promoted popish tyranny and she encouraged royal absolutism. In this guise, the Queen Consort has been made to shoulder the blame for much of Charles's behaviour. Behaviour that led to the English Civil War and even his execution. But there's much more to Henrietta Maria. Today's guest argues that she deserves to be lauded. The daughter of King Henri IV of France and Marie de Medici, both whose names she carried, before Henrietta Maria had even turned 16, she had experienced the assassination of her father, her brother arresting their mother, exile to marry a foreign Protestant king, and the expulsion of her friends and servants from her new country of England within a year of arriving. She then endured and overcame significant challenges during the Civil War and its aftermath, including the death of some of her children and her beloved husband. It's no wonder that you'll hear her today described as a warrior and a phoenix. To teach us about the life of this remarkable woman, I'm joined today by best-selling author and historian Leander Delisle. Leander is the author of After Elizabeth, The Death of Elizabeth and the Coming of King James, the New York Times best-selling biography, The Sisters Who Would Be Queen, The Tragedy of Mary, Catherine and Lady Jane Grey, Tudor, The Family Story, and White King, Charles I, Traitor. She joins us today to talk about her most recent book, Henrietta Maria, Conspirator, Warrior, Phoenix Queen, which was published in 2022 by Vintage and which Spectator called its Book of the Year. Leander Delar, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. Hello, it's good to be on. We're going to be talking today about your latest book, Henrietta Maria. You've obviously got a catalogue of wonderful books about the 16th century, about the Tudors. And this time, having already written about Charles I, you've decided to write about a Stuart woman. And I wanted to ask you both what provoked your interest. I know that having worked on Charles I, you had discovered much about her. But also, why do you think that she has really been quite overlooked in relative terms to many of the other Tudor women, for example, on whom you've also written. 
Yes, she's been dismissed and diminished, hasn't she, really? Partly because she doesn't fit into the sort of Whig narrative of the Reformation onwards, upwards. So any sort of Catholic queen is bad and awful on whatever level. It's only very recently that people have become much more interested in Mary Tudor, for example. And I think because there's so much focus on the Tudors that eventually they had to get round to rehabilitating or having another look at Mary I. And the Stuarts have been rather overshadowed by the Tudors in recent years. And so people haven't really looked at this truly remarkable queen consort, who obviously outlived her husband as well by many years. Her story isn't simply about her marriage to Charles. She's not just somebody's wife. She was a French princess, and that aspect side of her story is very interesting. The daughter of Henry the Great of France and Marie de Medici. And then after Charles's death, she's alive nearly 20 years. And the latter decades of her life are also very interesting when she was the Queen Mother. Yes, yeah, so there's very much this sense that if she hasn't been overlooked, she's been vilified. And as you say, crucial to that is the long breach of English parliamentary propaganda. Can you talk a bit about what you call national myths? I think the sort of myths are that somehow the Reformation put us on the path to parliamentary democracy, that history somehow is a linear and it's all sort of one step at a time. We had the Reformation and then, lo, we had parliamentary democracy. That's one myth. And I think it's quite an important one because... Then if, of course, you're not part of that narrative, if you're a Catholic consort of Shears, then you must be against progress. You must be a sort of negative force. And therefore, she must in some way be responsible for Charles's authoritarianism. And the idea of the divine right of kings, which was outlined, described and partially invented, you might say, in its particular details by Charles's father and was distinctly Protestant because a very important part of it was that, of course, he was head of the Church of England and the Pope was merely the Bishop of Rome. But that somehow the sort of myth is that the idea of the divine right of kings is a sort of Catholic thing, a European thing that must somehow have come from her terrible, wicked papist brain. And, of course, with that, there's the whole Eve myth where you have Eve seducing Adam and therefore you have this attractive woman who Charles grows to love. Actually, you know, they have terrible rows at the beginning of their marriage, but grows to love and therefore she manipulates him and seduces him into her corrupt view of how England should be. Chercher la femme. Yes, chercher la femme, absolutely. Talking of the French, so Henrietta Maria is, of course, French and... Can we go back to the decision, I suppose, to marry her? In part, you argue this is a bid to temper the power of the Habsburgs. Do you think England or France stood more to gain from the marriage? Ooh, I think England, really, because France was the greater power. England was in a very sort of weak position. We didn't have much of a military. Our navy was becoming much more powerful and actually Charles built it up considerably. But we weren't a power on the scale of France. And if we were going to take on the Habsburgs, as Charles particularly wished to do because his brother-in-law had lost his crown and his country to the Habsburgs, then he needed French help. For the French, it was obviously helpful having this lesser power as an ally, but it wasn't so necessary. And in fact, England didn't really help the French at all when it came to fighting the Habsburgs later. We were too busy fighting each other to be very helpful on that front. And the Habsburgs were eventually defeated by the French and the Allies. How was Henrietta Maria received when she arrived in England in the 1620s? Do we know anything about what people made of her? I think it was rather varied, actually. 
when she arrived in London, all the crowds came out to see her. And I think many people were curious and quite enthusiastic just to see a beautiful young girl, fashionably dressed. They hoped that she might convert to Protestantism. And that seemed very possible. After all, here she was, one girl with her household, but only 15 years old in a Protestant kingdom. There was every reason to hope that a bit of pressure over a few years that she would convert Others were much less enthusiastic. I think particularly anyone who opposed royal policy anyway, her existence was a stick to beat Charles with, or at this particular point when he was just married, his leading minister, the Duke of Buckingham, who had arranged the marriage. And there were concerns that somehow she would be a sort of Trojan horse for Catholicism. There was anger that Charles had been obliged to promise the King of France and the Pope that he would lessen the persecution of Catholics in England if he was to marry Henrietta Maria. And many people were very fearful of that. Protestantism was being rolled back in Europe and they felt very threatened. And is that what's going on with Buckingham? You've just mentioned him. He's Charles's closest advisor, George Villiers. He's his Lord Admiral, he's his foreign minister, and he didn't get on with the new Queen. Is it this sense of threat that is causing his dislike of her? No. I think it was a sort of number of factors. I think that he was very angry that the military alliance, which was part of the marriage alliance, was collapsing. And so he was very angry with her brother, Louis XIII, and particular Louis XIII's leading minister, Cardinal Richelieu. And he was embarrassed that his enemies in England and in Parliament were pointing the finger at him and blaming him. And so he was quite anxious to blame her and pass on the grief, so to speak. I think he was also concerned that Charles, who loved him like a brother, that some of this love might now be transferred to his young queen, and that would weaken his influence and power. So there was that as well. So he wanted to keep her weak, essentially. Now, I suppose the next question to ask you is, were people right to fear? Did this Catholic queen coming in, who in fact didn't convert, plan or encourage a Catholic revival? Yes and no. She was given various instructions by her mother on what she should achieve as queen. And she stuck by these through her whole life, really. One was actually to be loyal to Charles and to his kingdoms. She, not so much her mother, very much continued to see the marriage in the tradition of her father as an alliance between France and a Protestant power against the Habsburgs. But there was also the religious dimension. Catholics were very cruelly persecuted and she did see it as her job to try and mitigate and lessen that persecution. She was also told she needed to set an example that others would follow so that they might be drawn to the Catholic religion. But her achievements in this regard were very modest. I would say that during the period of personal rule, there were no executions for religious reasons of anybody, and not of Catholics or indeed of Puritans, they chopped off ears and things, but they didn't chop off heads in contrast to the Tudors. So there was a sort of period when the sort of disembowelings and castrations and heads coming off would stop, and her influence may have played a role in that. And famously, she had a Catholic chapel at Somerset House that drew many people to it. But you're not talking huge numbers here. But certainly there were conversions at court. Charles accepted a sort of papal ambassador, but he accepted this papal ambassador not really because he was just thinking, oh, I must think about converting to Catholicism. It was really because he hoped that the Pope might help have some influence with the Habsburgs that would help his brother-in-law. 
Yes, she did help alleviate problems for Catholics. But as I said, I think her achievements were, if one looks at it coldly, relatively modest. It might be a moment to just step back a second and think about the sort of sources you use. May I ask you about the archives you used to recover her voice? I mean, even mediated? Oh, yes. You really do get a sense of her voice. And of course, her voice changes over time. We're not the same at 15 as we are at 50. Although you'll still get a sense of the same person. Very funny, incredibly passionate, can be quite overwrought when she's a teenager, as teenagers can be. These are really in her letters. And yes, I was very lucky to be given access to the closed archives at Beaver to see her letters there. And I used many letters that had never been published before. There are letters all over the place, many of which are published. There are some also in the Louvre. Yes, her letters to her sister, to her friends, to Charles are a real eye-opener. You really do get a very strong sense of this woman. That's wonderful and amazing to be able to use archives or letters that haven't been published before. Can we talk a bit about, during the period that Charles and his parliaments are sort of increasingly at loggerheads, there's this kind of subplot, as it were. We've got Charles and Henrietta Maria enjoying themselves, investing in the arts and really acquiring this magnificent collection. Can you tell us bit about this period, things that we might be able to have in our minds about Henrietta Maria. Yes, the 1630s in particular. She liked to have fun. She surrounded herself with amusing people. And one of the things actually she encouraged in England was the art of conversation, something her son Charles II also enjoyed. And I came across some kind of brilliant quote, which now, of course, I can't remember. But it was some sort of Earl slash Hooray Henry who was complaining bitterly about this terrible fashion for talking. In the art, there was a great exhibition a few years ago, wasn't there? The Royal Academy of some of Charles's amazing art collection. But one of the things actually they did point out at the Royal Academy was Henrietta Maria's own contribution. Some of the pictures that Charles got in, he got through her. Some of them were given to her was passed on. But also what's rather striking is that Charles light old masters as they were then, i.e. petition, things that people who were already dead. Whereas Henrietta Maria, like her mother, liked modern art. She liked to commission things. She liked bang up modern stuff. She also liked art, which I think is rather underestimated. She had a great love of the theatre and was a great patron of theatre and went to the theatre a great deal, would go out, not just to go to theatre in court, but would go out to the theatres in London. Infamously, she appeared on stage herself in masks at court, with her ladies and spoke, oh my God, which was something late mother-in-law appeared on stage but didn't go around actually speaking and singing, which she did. And this was considered particularly shocking in England that a woman should talk on stage and she was eventually prevented from doing it any further. But what continued even after she was told indeed by Charles in the end not to no more speaking on stage, she encouraged these female-centric plays. So you had all these plays called lady plays and the sort of the main character was often a woman. And these women would have an obvious interest in politics and all sorts of things. And I do wonder if that played some small role or some role when the Civil War came. And of course, there were women who were very much engaged in the quarrels and indeed, in some cases, even in the fighting on both sides, both the royalist side and the parliamentary side. And I wonder if in some way Henrietta Maria hadn't encouraged that in a way. As I said, there was this atmosphere where woman's opinion mattered. Sex. 
it might surprise you to know that oh, it's been around for a while now. In fact, we are all the living, walking, breathing, talking proof that sex has been around for a long time. And over on the Betwixt the Sheets podcast with me, Kate Lister, I will be rooting around for the kinkiest, quirkiest stories in the history of sex, scandal and society. Or in other words, the best bits. Well, at least I think so. From bras to BDSM, from African warrior queens to witches, join me as I bed hop throughout time and civilizations to get under the cover with the most fascinating things that we've been doing, not to mention the downright weird. For example, did you know that men in ancient Greece were so turned on by a naked statue of Aphrodite that it had to be protected by guards? We have accounts of men trying to have sex with the statue. It caused a sensation. And that university professors once moonlighted as grave robbers? We were executing less and less people, so mm -hmm. there was a real shortage. If you want to hear about all of this and more, then join me betwixt the sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. So those who were starting to criticise her as we get down the road to civil war would in part have been criticising her precisely for that, for speaking up and letting her opinions be known. What else were her contemporaries blaming her for? Pretty much anything bad that Charles did. Quite unfairly, because she was engaged in, as I said, trying to protect Catholics and trying to promote her faith. And foreign affairs, she was also engaged in. As I said, she was very anti-Hatsburg. But sort of day-to-day -day politics and whether Charles was going to have a parliament or not, she was not engaged with. And in fact, although she was blamed, when Charles broke with parliament in 1629, she was blamed and it was said he was very pro his parliament, his last parliament this was, until he was in bed with his wife. And then presumably she snogged him a few times and he immediately said, oh my God, I must get rid of parliament. That was what was pretty much said. When in fact, the truth was that her political friends at the time, many of whom were on the sort of the moderate Puritan party, they wanted war with Spain. 
if Charles was going to go to war with Spain, he would have had to have called Parliament because he would have needed them to raise the money. He wouldn't have been able to raise those kind of sums, as he later discovered when he fought the Scots on his own. So it was completely wrong that she was in any way connected or instrumental in his break with Parliament in 1629. She was blamed for that. Later, when the war came with the Scots, not really a civil war because Scotland was a separate nation. There was no united kingdom. There was the union of the crowns, but not the kingdoms. But when this war broke out with the Scots, when Charles, he didn't literally try and prose the Anglican prayer book, but he wanted this prayer book, which was not dissimilar to the Church of England prayer book, which was not considered sufficiently Calvinist by the Scots. She tried to help Charles by raising money amongst Catholics, for example, which was a huge mistake because then the Puritans said, oh, this is all a hideous Catholic plot. They want us to fight the Scots. They want to set dissension between Protestants, between Presbyterians and Church of England, between Calvinists and Arminians, between the different kind of branches of Protestantism for their own nefarious ends. So she was then blamed for that. And then later, when rebellion broke out in Ireland, she was blamed for that. She was blamed for many things that weren't her fault. So when civil war broke out, 1642, she went to The Hague precisely for the reasons we've been talking about, to raise funds. And then we have her return the following year. Essentially, over those years of 1642 to 44, I mean, it, it's a bit like an epic war film, frankly. Could you tell us something about those events and why you decided to call her a warrior? Her father was a great warrior and she saw herself very much as her father's daughter. And she often mentioned him and said, essentially, I'm not going to back down any more than my father would have done. So, as you say, she raised money in The Hague, but she also not just raised money, but she actually bought arms. She was a sort of gun runner on a vast yes. scale. Henrietta Maria, the arms dealer. It's not the picture we normally get. Absolutely. She was, which completely saved Charles's bacon in the first battle of the Civil War, which he was expected to lose and he didn't certainly I don't think he would have managed it without her but anyway then she came back in I think February 1643 the parliamentarians tried very hard to kill her they chased her through the seas and after she'd landed in this little port in Yorkshire she was in this cottage they shelled the house she was in and there's an amazing vivid description written by her but also written by other eyewitnesses which I was quite interested to read and I hadn't read before describing exactly the same scene, which was literally her running under shell fire, running into a ditch, clutching her dog. A man killed just yards from her. The dust where the bullets were pinging where she was lying in this trench. Absolutely extraordinary stuff. And she was visited by a number of people, generals and so forth, because some of them, Montrose, the great Scottish commander, had been told that she was more reliable than Charles, that she was more likely to stick to her word. Others, parliamentarians who were thinking of changing sides, wanted to negotiate with her. And indeed, she did successfully negotiate some turncoats. And she worked very closely in Yorkshire with Newcastle, who was the royalist commander in the north, when it came to the war plans up there. And indeed, when she eventually she joined Charles in Oxford, his civil war capital, he called her south. She didn't want to go, but she eventually went rather grumpily. She took Bradford on her way south in a bloody and desperate fight, as it was described. So she's pretty much a warrior queen. And it was described as such by both sides, really, particularly actually by Parliament, because they disproved. Which indicates exactly the degree to which she was, because they obviously saw her as a real threat during the war as well as before. Yes. Actually, I don't think they really saw her as a threat. I think that was played up. But I think the sort of more sophisticated politicians and so forth, I'm not sure that they saw her as a great threat. 
not until sort of 1640 or so, not until they are then executed Strafford and they'd got rid of Charles's leading ministers. And then she essentially took their place. And then they began to see how dangerous she could be, that she was a very powerful ally and obviously a highly intelligent woman. And then they did start to see her as a real threat. I think all the stuff before about her sort of sleeping with Charles and convincing him to close down Parliament in 1629, I don't think the more sophisticated people in Parliament really believe that. After that point, between 1644 and 49, when she was in France particularly, do you think there's anything that she could have done to stop what we have at the end of that period, which is, of course, Charles being executed? Is there anything she could have done differently that would have changed the outcome? No, I really don't think there is. I think Charles could have done and I think if he'd listened to her, he might have saved his neck because she was all for him compromising at a number of points with his captors and he was not prepared to do so. Threatened him. She did everything she possibly could. She said, I'll never see you again if you don't make an agreement with the Scots or if you don't make an agreement with Parliament. And he absolutely wouldn't. I don't think there's anything more that she would have done. I think she had a ruthless streak as well. It certainly wouldn't have put it past her swearing blind that she'd have done this, that and the other and then doing something entirely different further down the line as monarchs had done down the centuries. But Charles wouldn't do that. And as well as calling her a warrior, you call her a phoenix. So let's pick up the story after Charles's death to think about the events in her life that shaped your thinking. I mean, Samuel Pepys is very rude about her, but what do you make of her? That's a very interesting story. So yes, the phoenix... There's a description that's often quoted and is usually used to pretty much round off her life, although she had another sort of 10 years to go. But anyway, when she arrives back in England in November 1660, Charles II is king and Pepys goes to court and he sees her and he says she's dressed in black and she's looking very ordinary. It all sounds a bit, you know, you've had this woman who's supposedly both an idiot and yet somehow has managed to manipulate the king and cause the civil war. But anyway, but now she's just a sad little crone. The reason that she's looking like a sad little crone is that her youngest son, she had quarrelled with him. She'd been really looking forward to seeing him so they could make up and so forth. And he dies. One might not be feeling at one's best. One might well be dressed in black at that particular stage. But there's several other descriptions which people never quote, also in Pepys's diaries. When he comes back, he sees her at court a couple of years later. And he says that hers is the most glamorous court that it's merrier than that of Charles II, the merry monarch. And she's, again, a very powerful figure. And she writes to her sister saying she's as happy as she's ever been. And I suppose what interests me is why do they always end with a sad groan? And why do we never hear of her sort of all happy and jolly two years later in her merry court? And I do think this is, again, and people aren't always aware perhaps what they're doing, but this is, again, all the myth of Eve. So Eve is at once beautiful and, of course, a hideous hag. If you think of the witch and sort of Disney or whatever, you have the beautiful woman and then, you know, one minute and the next, the hideous hag. And you get this very much with Henrietta Maria. She's beautiful and seductive. She supposedly has terrible teeth pointing in every direction. There's one famous description that's quoted about her. Secondly, she's miserable because, of course, what does Eve want? Eve is seduced by the devil. What the devil wants is chaos, which is the opposite of the order of God's ordered universe. He wants chaos and civil war is chaos. And so you have Henrietta Maria. Yes, her son, Charles II, is king. Order is restored. Naturally, the evil Eve-like crone can't be all happy and rejoicing. No. 
Boo-hoo! Here I am, all sad and bitter with my miserable life, and the civil war has ended, but I can't be happy because actually I'm a terrible, evil, Eve-like crone. Anyway, that's my opinion on why that is, because why else would nobody ever mention the jolliness two years later? Why do you never read that? In the eyes of her contemporaries, at least in the eyes of her enemies, what do you think was her greatest sin? Was it being a Catholic or was it being a woman? I think it was a sort of terrible combination. Her mother or Charles's mother was reputed to have converted. We don't know if she converted from Lutheranism to Catholicism. And she was never unpopular in the way that Henrietta Maria was. And I think that's because Henrietta Maria was a French princess. France was one of the great powers. Denmark, Charles I's mother was Danish, was not such a great power and was not a sort of Catholic monarchy either. It was Lutheran. So I think that even before Charles fell in love with her, I think so that was always going to be more of a problem, that combination of her being Catholic and French and being a woman. I suppose she was perceived in a particular way as a woman. So I think there are particular tropes are used against her. Interestingly, there were a few politically active women in England and in France still more. These women are obviously told they're not allowed to do anything or say anything ever. But so it's remarkable how powerful some of these women were. But of course, you couldn't hold an official position. And so you were forced, women were forced, who were interested in politics, to play rather subtle games. Because, yes, you couldn't hold direct power as a member of parliament. One last thing I'd like to ask you. This is a book that has been called Persuasively Revisionist, that it totally rehabilitates Henrietta Maria. And for those who, like you, admire and respect Henrietta Maria, what would you say is her greatest strength? Courage. She had great courage and love, actually, I would say. She loved fiercely her husband, her family, her faith, and I think they were her great strengths. Are they what I like about her most? I think what I like about her most is probably the rather more trivial side. I do the fact that she's very funny and the sort of terrible sort of bursts of emotion, which aren't always probably very sensible. I like her flaws, really, I suppose, as well, personally. But I think courage and love were her strengths. So Henrietta Maria, we can conclude, is both admirable and also someone who might be enjoyable to spend time with. (laughs) Yes, she wasn't a saint. And all the more interesting for it. Thank you so much for introducing us to her. If people have had their appetites whetted, which I hope they have, they should pick up this wonderful book, which has been book of year many, many places for 2022 and certainly worth getting a copy. Thank you so much for joining me on Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.